HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Patty Heenich, host of the award-winning PBS television series, Patty's Mexican Table. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Patty about the seventh season of Patty's Mexican Table, her passion for cross-cultural sharing, and we'll hear her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In just one week, the fourth annual Julia Child Award will be presented to chef duo Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger of Border Grill and Too Hot Tamales fame at the Food History Weekend Gala at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. on November 1st. Go to juliachildaward.com for links to purchase tickets to this public fundraising event. It's a not-to-be-missed, magical, and delicious evening celebrating the honorees, good food, and raises precious funding to preserve American culinary history. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're inspired by all Julia represented. When we started this podcast, I knew there were a lot of people doing amazing things that we wanted to call greater attention to, but I didn't anticipate there would be so many other Julias. Now, I'm going to give you a quiz. This person has a cooking show on PBS that has run many seasons. On it, she does the cooking demonstrations from her home kitchen. She has endless passion for discovering new food and sharing her knowledge, and she's re-educated millions of Americans about a foreign cuisine. Who am I talking about? Well, it could have been Julia, but not so fast. It's also the exact description of Patty Heenage. The difference is that we're talking about Mexican food rather than French. And just like Julia's wild, 
just like Julia was wild about unlocking France's secrets, Patty's on a mission to re-educate Americans about the splendors and diversity of Mexico. While there are many unique things about Patty, a key thing that distinguishes her from the other important Mexican cooking evangelists we know, like Chef Rick Bayless and Chefs Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, is Patty is Mexican. And rather than being an outsider who's translating their discoveries, she's an insider determined to enlighten us not only about the great food of Mexico, but also its culture and history. She's a bona fide culinary ambassador. And that's not just a turn of phrase. She's literally the resident chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute in Washington, D.C. Beyond her PBS series, we know Patty is a fellow member of the Kitchen Cabinet, an advisory group on all things culinary at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. So it's my privilege to have Patty join us today to share her, uh, her usual unbridled enthusiasm and valuable cultural insights. Welcome to the podcast, Patty. So much, Todd. It is my pleasure to be here with you today, and a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, I always love talking to you. So, I wanted to start with the cultural ambassador thing, and what does that mean to be the resident chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute? What is the institute, and what's your role there? Absolutely. So, the Mexican Cultural Institute, Todd, is exactly where I began my culinary journey. I was trained as a political analyst in Mexico City, where I was born and raised, and my dreams were of being an academic. And then I married my husband, Daniel. We moved to the United States. I enrolled in a master's degree in Georgetown University for Latin American Studies, and my dream was to be this academic working in a think tank trying to help with you know, uh, relationships between countries in this hemisphere and strengthening the democratic institutions of Mexico. And nostalgia really pulled me into the kitchen. And after a few years of working in a think tank, I resigned, enrolled in culinary school, and decided that I could do a better job through food. Because Year after year, I kept just bumping into continuous myths and preconceptions about who we are as Mexicans, uh, what we're like, what we eat, and yeah, mostly about our food. And by then, I was obsessed with not only sharing the real Mexican food, but also exploring more of the Mexican food that I was missing so much. So... I started teaching at the Mexican Cultural Institute exactly 11 years ago. I mm. happened to meet the director of the institute. So the Mexican Cultural Institute is like the non-for-profit arm of the Mexican embassy. And the Mexican Cultural Institute has a mission of promoting and enlightening everybody that will walk through its doors about Mexican culture, history, traditions, legends, and they didn't have a culinary program. Um, Uh. And the director there told me if I was able to put together a really wonderful professional curriculum on Mexican cuisine, and if I could get sponsors because... Of course, we needed funding, and if I could get people interested in joining that program, then the floor was mine. So it took me like a year and a half, but I started these live program of classes that really wanted to go beyond teaching a recipe and sh- you know showing people if you're going to make a salsa verde, this is what the salsa verde is, these are the ingredients, this is the history of those ingredients, these are the different ways that you can use the salsa, and let me share more about, you know, Mexican cuisine and culture. So that's where I started 11 years ago. I see. And so how often, do you still give like a monthly class there, or or what's the current program? It was 11 years ago, and we started with, with eight programs a year, eight classes a year. Each class thought had a theme for that connected cuisine and culture. So, for example, a uh, theme could be the moles from Oaxaca during Day of the Dead, or a history of vanilla in, in the state of Veracruz, or the food from Mexican convents during the conquest, 
or the foods of the Mexican Revolution. So as you can see, I'm obsessed with history. <laughs> and um, so we started with eight of these a year. I now do only four because I'm so swamped, but I can't leave the Institute because I absolutely love it. It's become my second home, and I'm very, very fond of that program. And that is that what sort of launched you into this whole kind of culinary career that you've had? Well, yeah, because my goal in the beginning when I switched careers, Todd, was to become a food writer. So I thought I'm not going to be a political analyst anymore. I'm better off sharing, you know, lost or forgotten recipes to the Mexican community here or to Americans who want to understand more Mexico. I thought that I could add more value to people's lives that way, you know, with a good recipe that could mean a lot for their family and their life and to give them tools. Um, I started teaching there, and I started writing articles and pitching articles to magazines and newspapers. And what happened, Todd, was that I had no experience in talking in public, you know, or using a microphone or being on stage. (laughs) But I started teaching the classes, and I absolutely loved it, and I started really connecting with people. And I started getting a lot of feedback from people saying, well, you should have your show on TV. You should be sharing this information on TV. Hey, there's no Mexican showing Mexican food. And you have such a unique way of explaining from the inside what Mexican cuisine and culture is. And at the same time, you're a Mexican that understands life in America because by then I had been here 10 years and my kids were born here making them Mexican-American. They say American-Mexican, and I always correct them and say Mexican-American. But um, but so, <laughs> you know, it started a little bit, you know, by people telling me I should try it and I should do it, and I started getting invited to some radio shows and local TV segments, mostly around Cinco de Mayo, and 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 that just turned a switch on, you know, inside of me thinking, hey, this is what I should be doing. And that definitely was the stage that opened the door for me. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, and I, I've read what you've said about Cinco de Mayo, and, and that was the kind of Cinco de Mayo repetition, the thing that made you kind of also take it up a notch to say, hey, there's a lot of misperceptions, and I really am going to take that mantle on, not just about teaching authentic Mexican cuisine and the diversity of it and the culture of it, but also that I I need to be this like kind of champion of er- eradicating misperceptions. Was that evolutionary, or was it like a light bulb switch that went on? Yeah, so, so it's actually really interesting, because I think there are many ways to approach, you know— um, Mexican cuisine and culture when you're on the outside. So on the outside of Mexico, there's a lot of people that get very defensive and they say, hey, Mexican culture and Mexican cuisine are not being properly represented. Cinco de Mayo doesn't even exist in Mexico in the way that it exists here. The food that's cooked in Cinco de Mayo is absolutely horrible and you know people are taking what's ours and making it something different and my point of view is you know you can't stop the trends and the waves that are going into the mainstream but what you can do is work with them so you can't tell people you're not allowed to celebrate Cinco de Mayo anymore in the way that you're doing it because it's not Mexican that's (laughs) pretty silly but what you can say is This is amazing. All of these people want to celebrate Cinco de Mayo. This is the way they are celebrating it because that's the only way they know how. Nobody's being mean here, you know, but if everybody's celebrating Cinco de Mayo this way, let's share some more really fabulous Mexican foods. There are these drinks that you can try. It's not only margaritas. Did you know that we have tequila that's so good that it can be sipping tequila? So I think that one should you know, work with the waves that are happening. And and I see a similar trend happening with Day of the Dead. People get very protective about Day of the Dead, and people say, you know, we don't want others to take our Day of the 
bad, but we live in an interconnected world and people sharing cultural traits and people enriching each other's lives. So why not take the opportunity and teach people about what Day of the Dead is really about? So if there's this big interest and there's this already huge fiesta for Cinco de Mayo, take the opportunity to open the door and share more. So that's been my point of view. Yeah, well, that's also a very positive point of view. It, it's a sort of more is more rather than a narrowing and, and limiting of things. And also, Todd, I feel like you're giving people the benefit of a doubt. You know, I think a lot of people take instantaneously get defensive in thinking that people are doing something because they want to be disrespectful towards Mexicans or towards the other or towards another culture or cuisine. But many times it's because there's lack of knowledge, you know, and people just need to learn a little bit more. And in that sense, I think and hear... I've been always such a huge fan of Julia Child and the way that she embraced the kitchen and shining a light on how the kitchen is indeed the most noble of spaces where people with contrasting opinions or points of view can sit down and learn from each other. So I think maybe that is why I'm so happy I switched from political analysis to cooking. You know, it's definitely easier to talk to people that have well, you, different points of views over tacos than over nothing. Yes. Well, there's a reason state dinners happen over food, too. It's definitely a very, breaking bread with people in all kinds of circumstances is a kind of key to, to both communication and human connection. Absolutely. So let's let's stay on that for a second, because I love the positivity behind it. And I was going to say, yeah, I think in most cases, 99% of cases, the reason people want to do something around Cinco de Mayo or Day of the Dead is because it looks fun and exciting. It's not a negative. It's not an insulting or pejorative. It's like, wow, those people are having a great time. I would like to as well. <laughs> exactly. And I think that those are some attributes of Mexican food and culture that Mexicans love so much, that really are who we are. So when somebody invites you over for a Mexican meal or a Mexican celebration, there are some things that you know that are going to happen. First of all, there's no ending time. You know, you get invited to a Mexican celebration, you know it's casual, you know it's like going to family. You can stay long, you can eat more, you can drink more. So there's that big, big value in hospitality. You know, you invite someone into your home, their family while they're home, which I think is such a beautiful trait of Mexicans. And also it's festive. It's a celebration. If you think about Mexican dishes, think about a big plate of tacos or enchiladas. We love to savor and dress and garnish, and our food is festive. So I think that the Cinco de Mayo... Um, you know, the Cinco de Mayo emotions and the Cinco de Mayo festivities in the U.S. are capturing that spirit. So it is just a matter of, hey, you guys are already celebrating. Well, here's some more foods that you can try, and here's some more Mexican music. And, yeah, we love mariachis, but we have more than mariachis. And, yeah, there are sombreros, but we don't all wear sombreros. So, you know, it's it's about... Showing more, but if people are enthusiastic about it, I always say, why squash the enthusiasm? Yeah, well, let, let's stick on that because I think there's a really interesting um, dichotomy that you are are straddling all the time and and advocating for, but also coping with. And that I know that being authentic matters to you, but when you mm-hmm. talk about authenticity, it's kind of more being true to yourself and being honest than it is about there's one right way to do that, do something or something, or there's one right form of food or one right way to celebrate Day of the Dead or Cinco de Mayo. At the mm-hmm. same time, you very much advocate and, and um, talk about the fact that most countries' food, even Mexico, is, is really fusion. It's been influenced by all different kinds of trends and stuff. So how in your kind of existence do you modulate between the two of of representing authenticity and then acknowledging fusion? This is such an important topic, Todd. I mean, it is so important. And again, 
I think authentic and authenticity can be such a tricky word. And at times it's been misused to the detriment of, you know, the sharing and the promotion of Mexican cuisine and culture. Because I think if you take the extreme point of view and say there is an authentic way of doing all these foods, right, in In Mexico, um, this is how mole poblano is done in the mountain outside of Puebla. People kneel down on the floor, use the metate, use these chiles that are only found in this little town. And if you want the true mole poblano, you have to make it this way. Where? Well, it's very probable that not many people are going to try to do it that way, you know? So I think... Yes, there are, you know, dishes and ingredients and techniques that are fundamental, that it's fabulous to learn from them. Um, But at the same time, you have to give people the flexibility and the accessibility to try and do things wherever they may be with the ingredients and the techniques they have on hand. So, for example, if I'm talking about some enchiladas that have queso fresco and where you live in London, you can't find Mexican queso fresco, but you can find everything else. Is it better for you to make those enchiladas and throw some feta cheese on top or to not make the enchiladas at all? My point of view is that you should try to make the enchiladas. And hopefully you'll be talking to your grocer saying, hey, I really want to get that queso fresco so they will source it for you in the near future. So that's my point of view in terms of accessibility for people. And, and again, in, in the question of authenticity and how authentic something is, if we talk about Mexican food in the way that it existed before the Spanish arrived, before the 1500s, I don't think anybody's going to jump, you know, with happiness thinking about eating that food because there was no onion, no garlic, no cilantro, no oregano, no tamarind, no mango, no cheese, no cream, no cows, no pigs. So Mexican cuisine as we know it, the traditional classic Mexican cuisine is a true intermarriage, a true historical fusion of 300 years of of colonial rule of the Spanish over Mexico. And it is that intermarriage between old world and new world with the pillars of, you know, the strong pillars of Mexican hands and techniques and ingredients that made what Mexican food is. But to the radical people that say, we have to decolonize our diets and we're only going to eat the foods of our Aztec ancestors, well, you're going to have to take a lot away from those dishes, you know? So I think it's, it's trying to swim between the extremes. It's trying to really value and honor everything that we've inherited, like really taking stock of those incredible recipes and techniques that have been handed down for generations, for centuries, and we want to continue to pass them on and to take care of them and to guard them and to protect them. But at the same time, a cuisine needs new air to breathe, to keep it alive. So you have the really modern chefs like Enrique Olvera, who's so extraordinary, who keeps on pushing the envelope, you know, to use Mexican ingredients in new ways that is pushing Mexican cuisine to be even more exciting and modern and to be at the top of the culinary world. So it's that tug and pull between preserving and respecting what we've inherited and pushing the envelope to make that cuisine not become asphyxiated and become outdated and die, right? So it's it's being in that pendulum. And I see it everywhere. What we were talking about before, the Cinco de Mayo, it's, it's again, there's always this pendulum between people that love it and that hate it. And the same thing with authentic. You know, it used to be said when I first moved to the U.S. that the only authentic Mexican food was south of the border, Well, Todd, I've tasted some of the most wonderful Mexican food north of the border cooked by Mexican migrants in the United States where they're 
taking recipes, techniques that have existed in their communities for centuries, and they're cooking them here with ingredients they find in New Mexico or in Chicago. So in a way, it's scary to think that to, for some people that there are no borders in Mexican cuisine, but I think they're really are no borders in the evolution of Mexican regional cuisine. Because now you have Mexican California food, Mexican Chicago food, New York-style Mexican food. And so for some people it's scary because it's like it's this unbridled growth of Mexican cuisine. But for some people like me, oh, my gosh, it's a thing of beauty. You just have more wonderful things to eat. Yeah, I was just thinking in what you said, it's kind of like, there are no limits. And why should there be? Because it just keeps evolving and getting better and new twists and turns. But if you want to have that special um, poblamo peppers the, the, the right way, you can still do that. No one's stopping you. Exactly. And I think it's also, it's being accessible. And I think Julia was a master of that. You know, she would show people... This is the way that you make the pate. This is the technique. This is the passed down um, rules to make it. But if you don't have this special tool to make it, don't stop. You know, improvise and use something else. You don't have the meat pounder. Well, use your skillet and pound the thing. You know, so I think it's it's being creative. It's being resourceful, but mostly taught, in my view is it's being kind to people that have an open mind and open their door to trying your things. You know, for me, Mexican food, cuisine, and culture is just so at the core of who I am, so dear to my heart. When I find somebody who's interested, somebody who tries one of my recipes and they tell me, well, I didn't find this chorizo, but I found this chorizo, and they send me a photo of what they tried and they tell me that they love it, am I going to say, well, it's terrible because you didn't use a true Mexican chorizo, or I'm going to say, hey, I'm so grateful that you tried. You know, and you have something new in your culinary arsenal and your kids are being exposed to new kinds of food. And I know you're going to keep on trying to find the Mexican chorizo, you know. So it's being it's it's um, it's being kind. I always remember when I started cooking, thought I was terrible. I was a disaster. And I remember when I started buying cookbooks um, and I was really drawn to Julia and Jack because they were so kind in their explanations of the recipes. You know, they didn't just tell you do it the right way or do this exact thing. Like they taught you to judge your, your senses and your intuition and to adapt. To, to your home and to your way of life. And I think the best way to share is to understand that you can't give people orders, you know, what to do. You can only suggest and share your knowledge. And once they get it, once people have your recipe in their hands, the truth is that recipe is theirs to do whatever they want. That's right. All right, we're talking chorizo and kindness in the kitchen. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Patty more specifically about her current season of Patty's Mexican Table, now in its seventh season. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Italian focaccia is such a satisfying and simple bread to bake at home. Samin Nosrat, our guest back in episode 15, surprised me with the reminder that the key ingredient on which focaccia relies is fat, specifically olive oil. Focaccia is really just flour, olive oil, water, and salt with a bit of yeast, and in Samin's recipe, a dash of honey. So the better the quality of the flour, olive oil, and salt you use, the better your focaccia will be. Watch Samin's Netflix series based on her book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, for a demonstration of how to make authentic Ligurian focaccia. And you can find the accompanying recipe on her website, saltfatacidheat.com. To source the best quality flour possible, go to Bob's Red Mill and use their organic, unbleached, white, all-purpose flour, which will help you make delicious focaccia. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code 
Julia's Kitchen Pod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on their range of all-purpose flowers. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning television personality, cook, and cookbook author, Patty Heenich, about the latest season of Patty's Mexican Table, focused on the food of Baja. All right, Patty, so the season begins in Tijuana, which is, I think, Baja's biggest city. And Tijuana has many claims to fame, many of them not so great, but it also has a vibrant food culture. So tell us more. Why did you start in Tijuana? So, <laughs> I, I am so happy we're talking about Tijuana and this new season because this has been the most fascinating season for me to film, Todd, because, and it has to do with your question about why Tijuana, because talking about breaking myths and preconceptions about Mexicans and Mexican food and Mexican culture, I mean, in Tijuana, you're right at the border, and you're in a city that is really like no other. It's a city that's marked by this continuous influence of the U.S. on the one hand, right? Because it's so close to the U.S. and it's just there. People are crossing every second, every minute, every hour. But at the same time, Tijuana is this bottleneck where people from all over Mexico, and we're talking from the 32 states, you know, from all over the country, people that are gutsy, adventurous, that want to try something new, that want to try their luck, that want to try to come to the U.S., they will go to Tijuana. Now, like 95% of the time, people end up staying in Tijuana because it turns out that they achieve not the American dream, but the Mexican dream in Tijuana because it is a place just riddled with opportunity. And the food is absolutely incredible. So because people from all over Mexico go to Tijuana, you find the best tortas ahogadas from Jalisco. You find the best carnitas from Michoacán. You find the best cochinita pibil from Yucatan. So Tijuana becomes this like microcosm of Mexico. And at the same time, it's this bicultural bridge to the U.S. So it's this fascinating place that has a lot of history. You know, throughout history, it's had its dark times, of course. You know, for years, since the 60s, 70s, Tijuana had the reputation of everything that Americans wanted to do that they couldn't do in the U.S., they went to Tijuana to do, you know, whereas it is to gamble, to party, to drink, doing prohibition, etc. And then it had its years of an unfortunate, um, you know, time with crime. But it's been like 10, 15 years that Tijuana has really cleaned up its act. And the culinary scene has taken center stage. And now a lot of people go to Tijuana because of the food. And there's a lot of technological innovation as well. So if you go to Tijuana, you find the most beautiful, young, hipster people opening up shop, you know, at the same time as people from all over the country and Americans that have moved to Tijuana. So it's this fascinating place. And at the same time, Tijuana is the door to the whole Baja Peninsula, which is a region of Mexico that not only Americans don't know really that well. Before I went to, to Baja, Todd, uh, people would ask me, what are you doing next season? And I would say, oh, I'm going to Baja California. And Americans would ask me, like, is that the south part of California? Like, people don't <laughs> know that there's two states that are called Baja California North and Baja California Sur, South. But the most fascinating thing is Mexicans don't either. You know? <laughs> so for Mexicans, they know Tijuana and they know Cabo or they know Todos Santos. But people don't know that much the history of Baja California, the two Bajas. And it's this area of Mexico that has its own like parallel history where, you know, as I was saying, you have a lot of influence from everywhere in Mexico, but it's also this separate place that has had a ton of influence from the U.S. and from international countries because now chefs from all over the world are wanting to open up shop in Baja Sur. So it's just this, this fascinating place with a new wine industry and a new beer industry and a new wave of Mexican cuisine that's called um, Baja Med because the Baja Peninsula 
has this Mediterranean-style um, weather, climate, and it has a bounty of seafood and olives and all these different herbs and fruits. And it's just these, as we were talking about authenticity, well, Baja Cuisine and Baja Med are these new up-and-coming cuisine that is being made right in front of your eyes. It is just fascinating, Todd, because you have the people coming from all over Mexico carrying their techniques and skills and tools from the different regional Mexican cuisines, and they touch Tijuana and they touch Baja, and they realize, hey, I'm not bound here by the rules of my city or my state. Here I can take my knowledge and I can play. And so you can taste really, really, really wild things. So it's just, it's fascinating. It's like watching a new cuisine being made, you know, right in front of your eyes. It sounds like also that's quite interesting about the, our debate about authenticity versus fusion, because a lot of those things, it sounds like olives and wine are not historical things to Baja, but they work there because of the climate, which is natural. And so people are adapting to what Baja affords, but maybe has been underexploited before. Is that right? Exactly. And the fascinating thing is that as you're talking about olives, to give you an example, right? So olives are not native to Mexico. The Spanish brought them, you know, when they conquered Mexico in the 1500s with the trade routes, they brought the olives. But if you think about Mexican dishes like pescado a la veracruzana or you know, uh, different kinds of moles that are made in Oaxaca, um, they use a ton of olives. And it was the olives that the Spanish brought. And so olives have been used in Mexican cooking for over 500 years. And the fascinating thing now is that those olives used to be brought from Spain. But now in Baja, since it has the same terroir, Olives are being grown there. So are olives part of Mexican cuisine? Are olives authentic in Mexican cuisine? So it's, it's these fascinating conversations. So, for example, there is a mole that's traditional in Oaxaca that is called almendrado. And it uses almonds and olives as its base combined with tomatoes, tomatillos, and some spices. So, of course, the tomatoes, tomatillos are native to Mexico, but almonds and olives are deeply old world. And to Oaxacans, to the people, native people of Oaxaca that have lived there for centuries and centuries, and they've made these dishes for centuries and centuries, almonds and olives are part of them, their heritage, their family. That's what they cook for Day of the Dead. So how far do you have to go in the past to say, well, this is really authentic. This is not authentic. This is new. This is not new. So the food that is being cooked and made now in Baja uh, with the olives grown in Baja and it's food being cooked by Mexicans in Baja with techniques and tools, you know, that are centuries old in Mexico. Is that Mexican or is that not Mexican? And the same question goes to, you know, here's Patty Hinich in her kitchen in Washington, D.C., and I have a bag of ancho chiles, olives, and almonds, and I want to play with a new enchilada dish. Is that authentic or is that not authentic? So it's those fascinating questions, you know, that have to do with food. Well, and I think you're pointing that out and your enthusiasm and excitement both for what is old and what is traditions that have been developed and then how they can be adapted and and what the, the, the building blocks of those traditions are that are almost always in all places a combination of things that are native and local and things that were imported and adopted, right? Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about Baja. What were some of the other surprises to you? I, I, I'm assuming you're going to say pleasant surprises, but I suppose there could be something yes. else. What? Oh, my gosh. No, it was it was all beyond wonderful. Listen, this is my seventh season, and we've spent more than seven years traveling to Mexico, exploring, you know, trying to go and do a reconnaissance of the things that I know so that I can then come and share with our viewers that are so, you know, kind to invite us into their home to see these shows. 
And the team that I take to Mexico, they're all Americans. They're all Americans from New York. And the fascinating thing, Todd, is that they're absolutely in love with Mexico. You know, it's like they're my guinea pigs because it's, you know, we go together. They get very excited about trying everything that that we try. But I think my my biggest guinea pig is myself because I always think I always think I'm going to go and, you know, you reconnect with things that I already know and love, and I'm excited about sharing those with people. But then every single time I learn 50% of new things. You know, we go with a plan, and once we get there, we realize that we didn't think of including this thing that's new. We didn't think of including this new chef or this new product or this new restaurant. So we have to be very accessible and spontaneous. And, of course, you know, this series is totally unscripted. Um, so that was fascinating, Tijuana. And then we explored the Valle de Guadalupe or Guadalupe Valley, which is, again, up and coming, all new adventurous people opening, opening up new modern super hip hotels and restaurants with the most fascinating food and Valle de Guadalupe has over a hundred wineries, and Mexico is now making really extraordinary wine. Um, you also have a new up-and-coming artisanal beer industry. And so as we went into the Guadalupe Valley, it was not only tasting all these wines and beer, and I'm telling you, everybody drinks all the time. It's <laughs> crazy, but really wonderful things. And the food is just spectacular. So, for example... One of the best breakfasts that I've ever had is with Doña Estela. She's right at the entrance of Valle de Guadalupe in Ensenada. And she makes this borrego tatemado or lamb in the style of where she came from, from the center of Mexico. And she makes these extraordinary burritos where she makes her own flour tortillas. And she makes these corn pancakes with fresh corn that's being ground there right in front of your eyes. And she... It turns out that she had to open up her home to make it a restaurant because she was having so many people come. So you taste from the most homey and welcoming and low-key and non-pretentious food like hers to, for example, we went to Fauna, which is a new restaurant that's now headed by a Mexican chef who trained with René Redespi in Noma. So wow. he's now brought all those techniques and he's applying to what he's finding in Mexico. So, and really upscale and modern and beautiful and absolutely extraordinary with phenomenal Mexican wine. So you go from having the borrego tatemado, you know, the, the charred lamb that has been made in Mexico for centuries in flour tortillas that are also made by hand, you know, in the way that they've been made by centuries when the Spanish brought lard because there wasn't lard before to these extraordinary sophisticated food and you stay you know from glamping to these extraordinary hotels that have these like wooden boxes flying off of a mountain i mean the tourist the touristic offer is just extraordinary and then we went of course to ensenada where the original fish taco is supposed to have come from and we tasted a ton of different kinds of fish tacos and from there, we went to Baja Sur, which is the southern Baja California state, and we went to places I had never been. So I don't know if I love more sharing with people the things that I already know and I'm excited about, you know, reconnecting with and sharing, or the new things that I haven't tried before, you know, like the things that I tried in La Paz and in Loreto and... um we swam with whale sharks. Um, we ate smoked marlin. I mean, it was just like one incredible culinary adventure after another. And then at the end, we finished in Todos Santos in San Jose. Um, and just, 
absolutely incredible adventures. It sound, that all sounds so mouthwatering and like I want to leave tomorrow. So you've definitely done your service to Baja and selling it and representing all facets of it really well. I did want to ask you before we move on to the Julia moment about, you know, Julia did a lot about France in a very similar way that you've done to Mexico. But eventually she kind of pivoted more to sort of cosmopolitan international food and particularly what was going on in the American food scene because it had changed so dramatically. Do you kind of see yourself doing an endless exploration of Mexican food because it keeps evolving and transforming? Or do you kind of see, well, maybe I'll do it for a while longer and then I'll pivot to something else? such a fascinating question because I feel like I can keep on doing the Mexican exploration until the day that I die. Like I've joked with my husband that if I were granted a hundred more years, I wouldn't have the opportunity to finish or, you know, exploring all of what Mexico has to offer, as you say, because it keeps on evolving and it is just so rich and so diverse. So in a way, I'm I'm doing that. And in fact, I'm writing a new cookbook um, with my same editor, Rox Martin, who published my past two cookbooks. And this new book is going to be all about the regional treasures in Mexico that haven't crossed the border, that are as we've discussed, you know, the classics that Mexicans absolutely love and the recipes that have a thousand renditions, you know, and, and I'm dying to share that with the rest of the world. And at the same time, Todd, I've been in the U.S. for over 20 years. And the more that the years pass, the more that I'm fascinated with what's going on with Mexican food outside of Mexico and how it's evolving and how there are different immigrant cuisines that have so many similarities with with Mexican food and uh, with our techniques and our history. So I, of course, want to keep on doing what I'm doing with Mexico south of the border, but I'm increasingly interested in exploring what's going on with Mexican food outside of Mexico. That all sounds really exciting, and it sounds like plenty of future things to have you back to talk about. So we're going to take a break, and after we come back, Patty's going to share a Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Patty, what's your Julia Moment? many Julia moments, but there was one that completely cracked me up and in fact keeps on cracking me up to the point that I shared with my boys all the time. I don't know if you saw a segment where Julia was with David Letterman showing him how to make a burger. I have seen that, but it's rare, but it's well worth watching. Go ahead. So that to me is you know, so inspirational and such an example of someone who adapts. She was there showing him how to teach, you know, how to cook these ground meat patty. The burner didn't work. And instead, she ended up teaching him how to eat, you know, a fabulous steak tartare. So it's, it is so exemplary of how... She was able to adapt and to use every possible moment to to share, you know, and to not be square and say, 
you know, this is what I came to show, this is what I came to do, and this is the only thing that I'm going to do. She was so versatile and so spontaneous that she just made the best of every possible moment. And to me, that was one where she really made the the best of it, and she was so incredibly endearing and fun. Well, and I think that episode is really, it's fantastic to watch because it's so entertaining. And the rapport between David Letterman and Julia is so distinct and it's enjoyable and unexpected. But I think like we've been talking about that comes through and talking to you, Patty, is it also showed that Julia, while she was also very experienced on being in television and dealing with the twists and turns, she was a natural teacher. So she was not about to let a moment go that she wasn't going to educate Dave into, into doing something he clearly knew nothing about. (laughs) Exactly. I absolutely adore that. Well, thank you for sharing that favorite Julia memory with us. And thanks for being our guest today. It is my pleasure, Todd. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Tell us what your favorite, quote, authentic Mexican dishes are or your favorite Mexican food uh, regions or restaurants even. That would be fine, too. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at juliachild on Facebook, at juliachildfoundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at juliachildjcf on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you want to follow Patty and learn more about her work, her handle on all social media is at Patty Heenich, P-A-T-I-J-I-N-I-C-H. You can easily check your local listings via that helpful finding aid on pattyheenich.com to watch Patty Mexican Table on your local PBS television station. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.